Sitting in a box undigified Gonna rewind and give them one more try Think about the days of lo-fi Mixtape Memorex and TDK Getting music out there the old-fashioned way Making the greatest hits of one day Mixtape Phonograph and dual cassette Before you could get everything on the internet But some things ain't made it there yet Mixtape Line in, line out if you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker, turn the volume to nine Here's an accidental slice of time Welcome to Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This is side B of the worst songs ever recorded, where we curate a collection of the most awful songs to ever hit the airwaves. We're back. I, I had fun the first episode. I, I did too. <laughs> um, still wondering how many fans we, we lost, but, but otherwise, I, I, it was a really... Uh, it was an interesting mix of music. So, hey, if, if we lost fans uh, having fun with some some you know polarizing music, well then have so be it. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, and you know, as we preface from the beginning, this is all subjective, you know. Um, but man, are there so many more songs I wish we could include? <laughs> because twelve is just not enough. But are we ready uh, let's do it alright you're up uh, I, I kind of ended with the song that's that's widely been labeled the worst song of all time I'm going to start with another one that's been widely um, labeled as the worst song of all time and it's, it's not a song that um, I knew growing up I'd heard of the song like heard of it mentioned but it's not a song that I was familiar with and that's MacArthur Park oh, God. This song is so <laughs> by Richard Harris. The whole song is about a wet birthday cake <laughs> <laughs> from 1968. Spring was never waiting for us, girl. It ran one step ahead as we followed in the dance Between the parted pages and repressed in love's hot fevered iron Like a striped pair of pants This park is melting in the dark All the sweet green icing flowing down Someone left the cake out in the rain I don't think that I can take it Cause it took so long to bake it And I'll never have that recipe again Oh no What does a late 60s pop song with over-the-top strings, multiple time signatures, and several movements sound like? Oh, yeah. And the song's primary metaphor for failed love, as you just mentioned, is a cake dissolving in the rain. Yes. That's MacArthur's Park for you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm not that, making that, that up. That's it. Yeah. 
American songwriter Jimmy Webb originally wrote the song for the association, but the association didn't want it. Didn't wonder why. <laughs> Meanwhile, Richard Harris, fresh off of his appearance in Camelot, was looking to make a pop record. I mean, if Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner were making pop albums in the late 60s, why not Richard Harris? Well, and here's the thing. He doesn't sound much better than Shatner and Nimoy. <laughs> right. I mean, he, man, some of the notes that he tries to hit are just... For a Broadway guy, right? Oh, good Lord. The two cross paths, and the result is this seven... Yes, seven-minute monstrosity. Now, other than trying to do 18 things at once, which the song is, is trying to do, the lyrics want so badly to be sincere. But they come off as, as, as parody, especially with today's ears. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. You know, maybe back then, maybe not so much. Now, at the time, this is funny because things never change, right? Conservative politicians were convinced that the song's imagery was the result of a psychedelic experience <laughs> right this is the height of not maybe the height but the beginning of the height of the summer of love right the, yeah. the hippie movement which went into the 70s more than oh, the yeah. 60s but um people were experimenting right Jimi well, hendrix and the doors especially with the acid yeah you had all sorts of eight miles high and strawberry alarm clock and all that stuff um but that wasn't the case in this song they were actually wrong on this one it had nothing to do with the psychological or a um, psych- psychedelic experience um Webb insisted that all of the images in the song were actually witnessed by him. And he wrote these lyrics more as, I mean, yes, they are metaphoric for the failed relationship, but it it wasn't drug-induced. I don't know how these lyrics pass the rough draft stage. I mentioned this last week, right? It's one thing to write something down. It's another thing to play it for someone else and then to record it and then to have a producer take a run at it, and then to actually choose it for the record. <laughs> Somehow it passed all of those, those levels. Um, so here, here is a sample of the lyrics. <laughs> Someone left my cake out in the rain, and I don't think that I can take it, because it took so long to bake it, and I'll never have that recipe again. Oh, oh, no. <laughs> That's, those are life-changing lyrics right there. <laughs> and he claims he really saw a cake in the rain being dissolved, and he thought that was a perfect metaphor for a failed relationship. Um, <clears throat> several other artists covered this song for some reason. That's the part that I don't get. I mean, Donna Summers, even she, and oh, the woman had a voice. Yeah. She could not save this song. Yeah, Donna Summer, Tony Bennett, Waylon Jennings, The Four Tops. Four different genres right there. Just oh, right, yeah. right. Donna oh, Summer yeah. is different than Tony Bennett, different than Waylon Jennings, and the four. Di- very different mm-hmm. genres. And one well, that's just all the beginning. This. <laughs> yeah, and it's been covered by everybody. Sinatra covered the song. Did he really? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's so, just... Weird Al with uh, Jurassic Park. Why? Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the song made it to number two. I was disappointed. I wanted another number one that I hated. Song made it to number two. So clearly, it has fans. In fact, it has some famous fans, including one David Letterman. Yeah. Who loved the song so much that he actually had it performed on his show. I was going to say, he dedicated an entire episode to yeah, the song. Yeah, with a full um, yeah. orchestra and everything. Wow, teach their own, I guess. Um, yeah, I know. I'd always heard that the song was bad. And when I finally listened to it, I, I couldn't believe that it was as bad as... But it was. It, it, oh, it yeah, wasn't yeah. a situation like Re- Rebecca Black where I listened to it. Then, oh, it's bad, but not that bad. Um, yeah, this is this is yeah. fairly unlistenable. There are so many people, but this is one that is that really divides the listeners. There are a lot of people that I, I I don't get it, but there are a lot of people that claim that this song 
they think it's one of the greatest. It's got to be nostalgia or something. I don't know. I mean, they talk about like the musical complexities and the, you know, the well, yeah, e- I, even the lyrics. There's they, a lot they, going on. They talk about the, li- and I'm like, the the problem with the song though, aside from it going on for far too long and Richard Harris not being able to hit the high notes, is that realistically. There's too much going on. That's what I said. Yeah, they're yeah, trying to do 18 it, things at once. Yeah, it, it's too busy. just... Way too busy. Yeah. I mean, Pick hit, a lane. P- exactly. Yeah, just figure out what you want to do, I mean, especially if you're trying to be sincere, because the song comes off as such such a, a joke, really, that it's you know it's very hard to find any I, I got to read it. Well, I gotta, trace one of, more time. I got to read Someone left my cake out in the rain, <laughs> and I don't think I can take it, because it took so long to bake it. And I'll never have that recipe again. Oh, no, no. Yeah, best metaphor for a breakup I've ever Oh, heard. my goodness. Yeah, I am, yeah, it's just, oh, it's so bad. That, that's all I have, man. I, I, I don't that, care to discuss it that's anymore. That's all you need, <laughs> really. <laughs> it's just, it's a terrible song. It was on my list for a while. To, well, it, like I said, the 70s, man. Mm. Oh. This was 68, but yeah, close, close enough, yeah, right? This was on there. I had, I had Convoy on mm. there for forever, which probably should have stayed on there because Convoy is just a mess of a song. I just, I had Muskrat Love by Captain and Neil. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I had the longest list of just pure 70s, I, I had another one I, I would consider uh, Torn Between Two Lovers. Oh, yeah. And I, I went back and listened to it, and I think the reason I hated it so much was I was just, at the time, well, I think I was a teenager when I heard it. I think it might have been on that same CD that someone gave mm. me. And I just was so offended by the fact that this, you know, woman stringing these two guys along that it, it yeah. just made me angry. Um, but, yeah. yeah. But I noticed you you picked one, too, that I won't spoil, but I, I would consider it as well. That I think yeah. it's the same same vein there so that's that's all I have for MacArthur Park you, you know you, you do have to if you haven't listened to it you gotta force yourself to do it right I mean we've all had to go through it so you do too um, but that cake that those that may that may be the worst that's worse than America's the heat was hot the heat was hot yeah it, yeah, it doesn't get much worse lyrically than MacArthur Park it's, <laughs> it's just oh, so. oh, great way to start that's it yeah, so. that's it all right well a few months before my next selection was recorded, the British supergroup Band-Aid had put out a nice little Christmas song about starving Africans and how good it was that we weren't them. And it was a huge success. So, of course, we Americans weren't going to take that lying down. We, mostly Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson, came up with our own song, which was less about starving Africans than it was about us, we and how we are the world. And that's America. There's America. That's yeah. America in a nutshell. <laughs> Exceptionalism. Yeah. Um, then over 40 musicians heeded that certain call. And the call was to come to a studio in LA and record the song. A song so epic, so star-studded, so unabashedly schmaltzy, it will never be forgotten. And somehow Dan Aykroyd ends uh, up being Yeah, <laughs> that song, We Are the World, went on to sell more than 20 million copies and raise over $63 million for humanitarian aid in Africa. Which is good. It was just good. Very notable, very good. Its charitable work, though, is not its legacy. We Are the World is known for being a wonderful, delightful, ever-entertaining hot mess of celebrities, most jockeying for attention, (laughs) and the ability to say that their voice did the most for Africa.
time when we heed a certain call when the world must come together as one there are people dying oh when it's time to lend a hand to life the greatest gift of all we can't go on pretending day by day that someone somewhere will soon make a change we all a part of God's great big family And the truth You know love is all we Some artists phoned it in, okay? Paul Simon, for example. (laughs) Paul Simon is so, he's just so listless. He's so unaffected (laughs) with the words seeming to just fall out of his mouth. Like, I know I should be doing this, but I wish I wasn't. (laughs) There's no oomph behind them. And when he moves out of the way for Kenny Rogers to sing, he makes a, sure, I guess, face, okay? (laughs) Some gave it their all. Cindy Lauper's enthusiasm and commitment cannot be contained. I mean, just look at the way she squirms while singing her lines. Lopper comes into this song with a ferocious appeal for change, and her passion is electrifying. She basically wants you to know that she means business, and you had better open your goddamn wallet because too many people are dying. Now, real quick, quick aside: when sixth grade, you went to Woodland as well. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. We, but I don't know if we had the same music performances for our parents. Yeah, it was all. Do you remember we did? We are the we world. Are the world. Yeah. Okay. And I, rem- I remember some kid did the Cindy Lopper. and she stops. She says, "Okay, you're not Cindy Lopper. We're, we're not going to do that. Cindy Lopper can get away with that." You, my friend, cannot. Yeah. Mrs. Keir, her music teacher. Yep. Anyway, oh, I, go ahead. I remember, yeah. <laughs> okay, so other artists, some showed up for no reason. People really, really, really liked the Blues Brothers in the 80s because otherwise I can't think of any reason why Dan Aykroyd would he, even be invited. He was just hanging out in the studio. Yeah. Maybe they grabbed him. I don't know. And then some artists even no-showed. Prince refused to participate because he hated the song. No surprise. He did offer to play guitar on the track, but Quincy Jones, the producer of the song, was so angered by his offer that according to Rolling Stones, Jones shouted into the phone to Prince, we don't need you to effing play guitar. Okay. The end result (laughs) was not one of those songs that crawls under your skin. It's, It's not so awful that you hate it, but can't get it out of your head. It's not an earworm. Here, we have the complete opposite. We Are the World is a terrible song because it is so laughably boring. <laughs> I mean, it is, it is a terribly dull song. It's a snooze fest. It is ranked as one of the worst hits of the 80s because it was so incredibly disappointing. It was a commercial success, selling 20 million copies, and it was done for a good cause, famine relief for Africa. It raised all of that money, all good. But when you see the list of great stars who made themselves available for this, and then you hear the results. Artistically, this is an epic fail. The song was written by two of the hottest songwriters of the period, post-thriller Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie. But then, on second thought, having Richie involved in the writing may have been the mistake. At this point in his career, 
he was all of his ballads were starting to sound very much alike. And, but I can hear both of them in this. Oh, I can. Yeah. 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 Oh, absolutely. But but really, I mean, his career, he was writing some of the blandest pop hits imaginable. And I like Lana Ritchie. And I own, the, I own those albums. <laughs> Are but, you talking about Hello? <laughs> yeah, Hello, Say You, Say Me. You know, it, it, uh, it's, oh, I, I like his stuff with the Commodores a hell of a lot better than the solo stuff. And I'll, I'll leave it at that. I feel like all of, all of his 80s output, after Running With The Night, that one... That, that one, song, that like one it. jams. But after dancing on the ceiling, yeah, dancing on the ceiling. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I, he just he he was he was starting to write some of the blandest pop hits imaginable. Truly, what was the other one? Same out now. Truly, and there was Ballerina um, Girl. There was Stuck on You. There truly, was, and then um, You Are. You Are. I like that uh, song. You yeah, are. You Are. That so, that was one of his early solo yeah, albums. Right. Anyway, um, yeah, but basically having him write here, uh, that wasn't going to make for something exciting. Well, we'll leave it at that. One of the producers was Quincy Jones. The other, Michael Amartian, uh, he had a few years earlier produced Christopher Cross's album, which won a boatload of Grammys. And the artists they got involved were a virtual who's who of talent. Stevie Wonder, Bruce Springsteen, Willie Nelson, Tina Turner, Billy Joel, Diana Ross. There were immortals. Bob Dylan. Yeah, there were immortals there, such as Ray Charles and Bob Dylan. Yeah. And there were stars of the moment in Daryl Hall, Huey Lewis, Kim Carnes, Steve Perry. The talent was overflowing. And what is the result? A big nothing. A song that puts you to sleep. The only interesting part of the whole thing was watching the video for the first few times to see all this star power together. Now, this goes on for seven interminable minutes, saved only by certain individual performers who do their best to elevate the material. Bruce Springsteen practically shreds his vocal cords, trying to give the thing some heft. And Ray Charles could sing a Mitch McConnell speech and still make you want to send money. <laughs> and of course, there was Bob Dylan's nasally whine, which left the young and uninitiated peeking into the album sleeve looking for who was responsible. I remember saying to my aunt, who's Bob Dylan? <laughs> right. And she's like, oh, he was big in the 60s. I'm so embarrassed that, that yeah. I said that. Anyway. But I mean, really, I'll admit that certain combos were inspired, notably Springsteen and Stevie Wonder. I mean, their, their call and response is Pretty, pretty incredible. And then the trio of Huey Lewis, Cindy Lauper, and Kim Carnes. To this day, I swear the three of them should get together and do an entire album right, yeah, right yeah. now. Right now. But it wasn't enough to keep the song from being ultimately a big mound of dreck. And, and the proof of it being, we still listen to Do They Know It's Christmas every year. But if We Are the World ever came on the radio, we'd probably drive immediately into a highway abutment, uh, just passing out at the wheel. I... My question is this, who, who has spun this record since 1985? Other than nostalgic shows or podcasts or, or 80s like documentaries that you see all the time on TV, no one. Yeah. Now, you gotta say, I don't know if Do We Know It's Christmas would also be played if it wasn't the fact that it's a Christmas and the, song. And that's fair, that's fair. Um, but, okay. <clears throat> I don't. I'll, I'll wait till you're. Are you well, finished? no, I'm. I'm done. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it, it, the whole point of, of we are the world. I mean, and, and it's on so many lists. I mean, it's not just me. It's just. It's the biggest disappointment in music history. I, I <laughs> frankly, don't, I don't disagree with anything you said. However, I do think it is quite admirable that Quincy Jones was able to take how many people were on the track? 30, 40 some. Uh, over forty. Forty giant egos. Yeah. Put them in a room and come out with a finished product that you could sell and play on the radio. Well, and there was a sign at the door that said, check your ego at the door. Well, that makes sense. And none of them did. Well, 
most of them did not. Um, that, that's what amazes me, because to me, an experiment like this would have just ended with a bunch of fighting, creative differences, people wanting more time on the track than other people, people wanting to be in the front for the video, and the whole thing just ending in a disaster with no product at the end. And the fact that Quincy Jones was able to pull this off mm -hmm. is one of the greatest feats, I think, in recorded history. That doesn't reflect on the quality of the song. Right. It just reflects on the insurmountable odds um, that had to be, you know... Crossed well, to to, yeah. to do something like what, this. Well, it almost fell apart because sure. uh, what, seeing the documentary about you know in time in real time how how it came to be, there were a lot of artists threatening to leave. They could not agree on anything. Everyone was trying to steal everyone else's parts. Um, and there are so many big names that signed on to do this that weren't given any solos at all. Right. I mean, it's like Waylon Jennings threw a hissy fit because he, he had no line. Um, Lindsey Buckingham does not have a solo. Um, th there are so many. Bob Geldof, I mean, he was basically... I think Bob Geldof was a part yeah, of it. Yeah, he was a part of it. Um, th Were they all American artists? Yeah. So why is Bob Geldof there? Don't know, but he was. I mean, I, it makes sense because of Live Aid and, yeah. and Band-Aid, but... Yeah. yeah, but I mean, it was there were so many... Steve Perry looks like he's he's trying to sing a different song entirely, <laughs> <laughs> which he probably was. Um, it just... I don't know. It's just so. You are right. I mean, because they. Here's here's the thing. First of all, it's amazing that they ever got the artist to sign on. You know who they credit for that? Hmm. Springsteen. Really? Yeah. Because they they were trying to get. First of all, they wanted uh, Lionel Richie and Stevie Wonder to write it. Um, and Lionel could not get a hold of Stevie Wonder. And Quincy was the one who suggested Michael Jackson. And Lionel Richie, I guess, was not too keen on that but he he allowed it and then they um they were trying to get other artists to sign on and everybody was him and han and then they they called uh basically on, on springsteen and it took him a while to answer because he he had just gotten off a huge he had just gotten off the board in the usa tour mm -hmm. and the man was tired but he agreed he said i'll do it and then according to everything that i read once springsteen signed on they didn't have to beg anybody sure, else. Yeah. Everybody else signed up. Um, and then, really, they had everybody of the era except for Prince and Madonna. They're the only two that, I don't even know that Madonna was invited. She probably was, but um, yeah, Prince, he just, he wanted no no part. Prince just said, matter-of-factly, the song sucks, and he was not wrong. Yeah, so, um, in fact, here's the thing. If you hear any of these artists talk, other than Richie or Jackson, well, Jackson's gone, but everybody thought the song was awful yeah everybody and and yet they all came together the other person that saved it what well, two two other people one was harry belafonte who was also mm, a part right, of it right because belafonte i mean he was he was just he was watching all the the arguments you know uh happening around him and he just he basically made this plea saying you know all of you are forgetting the reason we're here and i believe it was bob geldoff who, when after Belafonte made this impassioned speech, Geldof started singing Banana Boat Song. Hmm. And everybody, one by one, started joining in until the whole group was in this rousing, you know, sing-song of, of the Banana Boat. <laughs> yeah, they should have, really. <laughs> Would have been much more entertaining. <laughs> and after that song finishes, in the, you know, the documentary, you can see everyone's just smiling and everyone's just okay, and they come together. And then the other one was Ray Charles. 
because Ray Charles, he kept emphasizing, literally, he was I mean, probably the gospel roots. I mean, you know, he's the one that keeps yelling, come on, everybody, give, right, give, right. Me, give me more. And as he does it each time in the song, the voices get louder. And But it, it's just, oh my goodness. It, it just, it is, it's the biggest disappointment in popular music history, I think. I do have more, even more respect for Michael Jackson musically, <clears throat> musically, um, the more I learn. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I might have naively thought that he had a voice and, and, and could dance and, you know, co-write, but I just saw a video of, of Beat It. Was it Beat It or Billie Jean? I forget which one. Where somebody broke down how he structured the song and how he recorded, kind of like The Longest Time, but in a more subtle way, mm-hmm. all of the different backing parts and how he layered on, you know, the whole, I think it might have been Beat It because you have the um, um, Eddie Van Halen right, the guitar part song. as well. Um, but afterwards, I'm convinced, yeah, he he was a musical genius. Oh, he was, he was. And I, I, I would challenge anyone who would disagree. And, and he used, to, he was, a mu- I mean, he would go to like Tower Records and he would buy thousand dollars worth of records like every week and mm-hmm. he would go home and listen to them all and, and he was a real student of music yeah and and he was the real deal definitely yeah. no he definitely was i I've, I've always respected him as a one of the premier musicians of his of his time i um yeah I, really if you for me if you just remove bad not the album but the song you right. remove bad from his catalog and i don't know that there's a bad song Excuse the pun. Other than bad, yeah. It's it's. I'm sorry. That one just goes on forever, and it, yeah. it serves no real. Blah, blah, blah. But right. um, yeah, no, he was. You know, and and so many of his songs, so many of his songs actually did what We Are the World was trying. I mean, Black and White, sure, or Man in the Mirror. Yeah, Man in the Mirror. He could have written that song. Man in the that, Mirror would have been a good one yeah, for everybody. To that sing. would have been unbelievable. Yeah. But We Are the World, <laughs> and it's so again so American. <laughs> just it's just so egocentric. Was it better than Hands Across America? <sighs> I don't remember who sang on that track. I don't remember either. Although I, I did participate. I participated too. I was in line. Um, Actually, about two blocks from where I'm sitting right now. Where, really? Yeah, it was. Oh. Uh, we yeah, went through Greentown, and so we came up from Canton. Yeah, I don't remember where we we weren't in town. We were some. We were visiting family, and I don't remember where we were. But it was happening at the time, and we just got out of the car and and locked hands I, I I don't I, I remember it very vividly but I couldn't tell you <laughs> I have no and then idea. we found out no like, idea where we out, were out west they, they totally broke the chain yeah they, they broke the chain people to yeah. go across the desert yeah it was a cool idea which eh, can't blame them there but um because the heat is hot um is hot. <laughs> so yeah I you know I did not have we are the world it actually replaced it in the end, it ended up replacing the thong song. I was <laughs> Cisco was there for a while, um, and and it just, <laughs> thank you for not choosing. You're welcome. Not because I like the song, but I didn't want to talk about it. Right, but I um yeah, I I like lingerie, but a song about it, eh, not so much. Um, but yeah, it just I I'm sitting here for a while. I even had dancing uh, in the street by Jagger and Bowie. Which, yeah, yeah, which is yeah. the worst cover in history. Yeah, that's pretty bad. And the two of them, oh. Do you still have um, 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 Boone, Pat Boone? Oh yeah, okay, okay. He's coming yeah. up. Yeah, he's coming up. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's real. And I had I had his daughter for a while too. You yeah, let, you yeah. let up my life. I considered that too as well. Oh, one of the worst. Bow- that oh, the only song worse than you let up my life from the seventies really is Feelings. 
Oh yeah, yeah. That song, I still don't know what feelings the song is even supposed yeah, to be about. Yeah. It's so vague. Um, but yeah, I, in the end, I just I I was sitting there and I'm thinking to myself. First of all, the '80s weren't well represented. I, I only had two songs at the time, and I thought, what is the worst song? I almost went with Mickey. I'm sorry. Again, I, that's a great. I don't mind. Uh, Mickey. Mickey just it's it's so. Uh, Mickey needs love. Not I almost had two cheerleader songs because Holla Back Girl was on my list yeah, for a while. There's nothing too. wrong with that song either. You are so forgiving. Nothing so, wrong with that. You're song. softy, Dave. I like Gwen Stefani, especially when <laughs> well, she's I, with No Doubt. Well, yeah, I, I as as No Doubt, I I loved Gwen Stefani. Her solo and her stuff. The, work. the song with Moby too. Was that the same one or was that a different? Thing? Uh different no that was like east side west side one of those yeah I don't know. yeah um anyway. but, but in the end i just thought to myself we are the world it, it, it's just irrefutably bad i mean it, it's it's not an earworm it's not you know this is not a song where anyone did anything wrong they just didn't do okay. anything right so i'll say it's not bad but it's not good yeah yeah how's that i'm That's very fair. neutral yeah but of course, there's so much other stuff going on there so yeah. all right no 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 that, that that's good it deserves a place on the list all right. Your turn. All right. Well, I kind of prefaced this last last week or two weeks ago. Um, Heartbeat by Don Johnson, <laughs> 1986. Um, yeah, I ended my picks last week with a song from the mid-'80s. Why not, uh, why not continue with that here? All Gen Xers remember Don Johnson as the actor who played Sonny Crockett on the hit cop show Miami Vice. But many have forgotten, uh, or intentionally blocked from their minds, his short pop career, which consisted of Two albums and two hit singles, one with his girlfriend, Barbara Streisand, mm-hmm. who was dating at the time, and the other, which went all the way to number five, uh, and that's Heartbeat. Did that relationship ever? Did you ever question that relationship? Don Johnson and Barbara Streisand. To me, he was the. I mean, every, he was older than we thought he was. He was because he's definitely a boomer. Yeah, but every woman in America wanted him, and he was dating. But she's Barbara Streisand. I mean, what? Well, yeah, not like Pete. But, uh, not uh, Ro- 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 didn't Roger Daltrey date her? At least they were in a video. He's using that Who video. You better, you better, you bet. I'm pretty sure she was in that. I don't know if um, the two of them dated or not. Um, and then didn't she date Robert Redford at a time? I know they starred together. Every, I don't know. Everybody dated Redford at some point. So. <laughs> that and, and Warren Beatty. Yeah, well, Warren Beatty. Talk about uh, robbing the cradle. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, despite its success, uh, the song is truly a train wreck. Johnson said, this is what I find laughable. 
Johnson said he wanted to record a modern, tough rock record, and he refused to compromise. Tough rock. <laughs> he refused. Okay. <laughs> what did you turn down to get to this point? That's what I want to know. Uh, he felt he had achieved his goal. Um, he said he didn't want it to sound like he just dropped by the studio, recorded the vocal, and walked away. Well, mission failed. <laughs> as, one critic, as one critic put it, Don Johnson sings as well as Glenn Fry acts. Oh, that's hard. Remember Glenn Fry yeah, was on Miami Vice? Yeah, yeah. A lot of people um, don't realize that this recording, and I didn't either, well, it was actually a cover. Uh, Heartbeat was written and recorded by Wendy Waldman in 1982 and was covered by Helen Reddy the same year. Really? Yeah. That I didn't know. Um, Johnson's cover, of course, was the most commercially successful of the three. Now, songs like these, are they only successful because of the celebrity singer? I'm thinking of Eddie Murphy's number one song, Party All the Time. Party All the Time, yeah. Or did the song do so well because Miami Vice was the number one television show at the time? Probably both, both right? Both, yeah. But regardless, it shows that, and here's the snob in me, artistic merit and chart position are not often aligned. True. And I, I don't know, the song is just so silly because Don Johnson tr- tries so hard to make it serious. Well, here's the thing. If you really want to do a worst songs of all time, we could just do an entire mixtape of celebrity Turned yes. singer, you know. I, mean, I every oh. there are some exceptions, but most there, of them, there are. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, everyone from Scott Baio to Scott Sean, Baio. Sean Cassidy to, Sean to Bruce Cassidy. Willis, do you run, run to Bruce Willis? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Express yourself, you know. Um, sad thing is, I loved that album. What was I, it? The Return of Bruno, or yeah, the Return of Bruno. Yeah. I'm sorry. As a kid, as a Moonlighting fan, I thought Bruce Willis was the coolest. Hey, guy Moonlighting's in the world. back on Hulu. By the way, I know way. it is. Yeah, or not back on. It's on it's, Hulu. It's streaming. Yeah. yeah, but I did. I thought David Addison was like the coolest damn character on television. He is cool. He is, yeah. Oh, and it's so heartbreaking though now. Have you been following? Oh, I know. It's as someone who watched his father, you know, go through the dementia, it's just uh, my heart goes out to Willis's family. I I picked this before I even did any research and I'm glad I did because it's just so funny that everything he said he was trying to avoid is exactly what happened on the track. I'm sorry, if this is a tough modern take on rock wow uh, and it literally does sound like I mean he makes it sound like he was in the studio and he was involved in all these creative decisions and he turned down all this stuff and he had high standards wow well Johnson has always been like that though he has such an inflated ego and he just he he always even even his work on Miami Vice he used to, to just go on in interviews about you know the 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 grind of trying to put out and you had Philip Michael Thomas who's just sitting there rolling his eyes in the Dubs. interviews yeah well, so. and I knew I knew that in the 90s I believe it was that Don Johnson and Melanie Griffith were married I just did not know that they were together prior to that um, I guess it would have been in the 70s when Don Johnson was 26 <clears throat> and she was 15 yeah and they moved in together and 15 is I'm sorry that's Young. And I know it's Tippi yeah. Hedren's daughter, so she's Hollywood, and they have their whole thing going there. But that it doesn't matter. That's really creepy. It's very creepy. Really creepy. Yeah. That's all I have to say about that, as Forrest Gump once said. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh. It's such a weak song, too. Like the the, the chorus. Huh? Oh gosh. Yeah. So bad. Uh, it, it, I remember watching the video, which I didn't. He date Sheena Easton too. I think so. Um, I mean, she was she was. More than a. Why do I have the? She was. She wasn't just a cameo. I mean, I she, like she, she was. He was in her video. Or she was in his video. Or well, something. she was on Miami Vice was she? often. Okay. Yeah, she was in a lot of episodes of Miami Vice, and and I always thought Sheena Easton was 
gorgeous. So well, yeah, that that was fine with that. But uh, I'm pretty sure they were a couple as well. Talk about uh, uh, songs that you tried to make a little more subtle, but weren't like Sugar Walls. Sugar Walls, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> oh yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> anyway. oh, I just remember those ballet commercials, man. <laughs> okay, uh, moving on. <laughs> um, my next song. Oh, good God, my next song is Loving You by Minnie Riperton. This is the one I was saying that I considered young. It was a number one song. Again, seven of my 12 were number one songs. Uh, this was number one in begin by saying the talented multi-octave Ms. Ripperton she left this world all too soon after a fight with breast cancer and I have absolutely no quarrel whatsoever with her and I know the world lost an amazing talent when she passed that being said loving you is not a song I remember fondly <laughs> as a kid I didn't like anything mushy number one and this song is all bells and flowers birds sing and angels take wing and I remember hearing this far too often on AM radio as a kid. I always thought about Snow White. Uh, yeah. It's that, it's that old style, yeah. high octave oh, thing. Yeah. Now, now, Breaking e- glass. Yeah. Well, and even then, the gimmick of having songbirds chirping incessantly for three plus minutes did not endear me to Ms. Ripperton's biggest hit. Call me crazy, but I prefer my songbirds in trees, not on vinyl. <laughs> um, but moreover... I didn't appreciate the sound of a person screaming in my ears, okay? Riverton may have had a whistle-octave virtuoso voice, but hearing her screech, I kid you not, as a kid, what went through my mind, I remember this, I always thought that she was having her fingernails pulled out during the song. It's just so out of place. Yeah. And so I, jarring. And then I... Uh, Impressive, but jarring. Yeah, and then I even wondered sometimes if she was screaming because one of the birds had... <laughs> dropped on her, you know? Um, <laughs> in preparing for today's episode, I discovered that someone kindly spliced together all of her whistle octave moments in the song oh, geez. on YouTube. You know, just in case you want to break a few windows or, yeah, tor- or torture pass. your dog. To me, the song is a juxtaposition of moods. It's sickeningly syrupy sentimentality or it's excruciatingly shrieky. I mean, it's just positively painful to sit through and that la 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 refrain mm. oh my god as a kid i i kind of assumed she had forgotten the words to the song <laughs> and as an adult i'm not entirely sure i was wrong <laughs> so you know here's the thing just because you can hit those notes does not mean you should not in a pop song like this yeah no it's just so we're doing either or something maybe but it is so jarring it is so harsh and I mean the one thing I'll give her credit for that she wrote the song for her daughter she's the mother of SNL comedian uh, Maya uh, Rudolph, Rudolph. Mm-hmm. and you hear her singing Maya 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 at the end of the song as a parent that's cool That that's very cool and it, it I mean I think she was incredibly gifted but 
you don't hit those notes. You don't you don't even attempt those well, notes in a pop song. It's just I thought it was jarring as a kid when I saw Snow White and some of those early Disney oh, movies. Oh yeah. When the vocalist was operatic operatic and yeah. in that, that sense and it just it's, oh, it's, yeah. it's bad. It's it's awful. So I you know, I I felt kind of bad cuz I I didn't even know if I should really include this. I mean, it it's a terrible song. It it, it fits on the list without question. But there are some artists whose music I hate far worse, you know. But I just remember as a, as a kid, this song it it I mean it made my ears bleed. And in fact, when I was real young, the song scared the hell out of me <laughs> because I thought she was screaming in this. I, to me, I didn't even associate it with singing. I mean, when she hits those notes, I literally thought she was screaming like in pain. <laughs> so I remember hearing it as a kid and, and I'm kind of going along with the song. I'm like, oh, okay, it's nice and warm and and I got to them I'm like, whoa, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah, it's, Who let that one go oh, through? It is so unpleasant. Uh, Who let that one go through? Your turn. All right. <clears throat> well, I think you referenced this last, uh, last episode. Um, remember when in the movie High Fidelity? I do. When Jack Black goes off on the middle-aged gentleman looking to buy a record for his daughter? Yes. That record was I Just Called to Say I Love You by Stevie Wonder from 1984. No New Year's Day to celebrate No chocolate cup This is the song uh, Jack Black's character describes as, quote, sentimental, tacky crap and, quote, a musical crime. And there's no way his daughter likes this song unless she's in a coma. <laughs> Harsh, but accurate. Not wrong. Not wrong. Stevie Wonder, like Prince, as I mentioned two weeks ago, is a genius uh, who has written and recorded a number of soul and R&B masterpieces throughout his 70s. So we can give him a pass. I mean, he... It's definitely cemented his place uh, as a respected artist. Yet somehow, uh, this is his biggest selling single of all time. It hit number one in 19 different charts. 
and remains Motown's best-selling single of all time in the UK. Which I don't get. How does this beat You're the Sunshine of My Life or, you, or, you know... Or Superstition or Fingertips or any of those. Yeah, Isn't She Lovely? Or, yeah. I, I, I just don't get it. Yeah. It's, it's signed, sealed, delivered. I mean, this is just a terrible song. And it goes on forever. And, and not only that, oh, it because it was forever. written for the film The Woman in Red, which I think was, um, what's his face? Uh, it was, was Gene Wilder, Wilder and Kelly yeah. LeBrock. Yeah. Um, it was eligible and won both the Golden Globe and Oscar for Best Original Song Written for a Film. Oh, there are so many stinkers that have won the well, yeah, Oscar. Because usually it's slim pickings. <sighs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I kind of get why the song appealed to a mass audience, the same way that Christmas Hallmark movies appeal to a wide audience, Okay. And they, gosh, I sound so snobby. Um, but the song itself, to me, sounds like a parody of the sappy, sweet, empty pop songs that have traveled the charts throughout the decades. Um, and I love some of those songs, but this one is just nothing but empty calories. It is. The melody's not that that creative. Well, the on, lyrics uh, try to be clever, but really aren't. Well, you know, honestly, very much like my complaints about Paul McCartney last last episode. To me, it always just sounded like he picked one of the random, uh, you know, preset. Um, oh, on, re- on the keyboard. Yeah, yeah on yeah, the yeah. keyboard. I mean, it it is not. Like the bossa nova yeah, setting yeah, on it's, the organ. It's, it's not. I mean, there's no. Oh, it, it's just so lifeless, you yeah. know. And later in the song, if you have the album cut, not not the radio edit. When he starts distorting his voice when he's singing it, <laughs> yes, yes, I, you you finally think the song's coming to an end, thankfully, and then suddenly there's a key change. In the there's end a of key change, and then uh-huh. suddenly his voice is coming through electronically, and yeah. it just it's it's just oh, <laughs> it's it it never ends. The right. song just goes on forever. Right. It's oh, it's bad. And and you know, I mean, why pick on this song and not some other equally cheesy love song? Because there are a million of them out there. It's because it came from the great Stevie Wonder, you know? And and if it came from some industry manufactured boy band from Orlando, I would expect it. But it's just like, come on, man. Stevie Wonder, I once read, he, 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 I'm sure he doesn't still do this, but in the prime of his career, he said he wrote a song every single day. Hmm. And he said in a month's time, you know, 27 of them were crap. But because he kept writing, there'd be three gems in there. And I always respected that work ethic. Yeah. Oh, Absolutely. How did it get to a point where this was one of the gems and <laughs> not one of the, well, that didn't work. Well, you know, just his, his mid-80s output was... Part-time lover. Part-time lover was uh, better time. than it's this. It's better than this, yeah. But, yeah. but even, like, I think of Ebony and Ivory. <laughs> That's another one that appears That's on another a lot one, of lists. Yeah, yeah, I mean, literally, there you have McCartney and Stevie Wonder singing. And again, the melody's not bad. It's just that it's a simple sentiment that's so well, toned you know, up. Well, the idea that we can all come together... By sitting in front of a piano, right. you know, it's like I thought. Yeah, I thought the racial divide was a far more serious problem. <laughs> right. Thank, thank you, Paul and Stevie, it's a for nice clearing that up. It just didn't yeah, work. yeah. I, uh, <laughs> it's just whoa. Um, yeah, it's ah. Uh, so sorry, sorry, Stevie, but uh, I had to agree with Jack Black's character on this one. Yeah. Great scene, great movie. Oh, I love High Fidelity. <laughs> I mean, that, that's our bread. And I didn't butter. do it justice yeah. with with, with uh, Jack Black. Uh, yeah. You need to watch it if you haven't. That's our bread and butter, man. The whole yeah. the whole movie is about mixtapes. Yes, so. it is. And Springsteen has a cameo. He does. Okay. Here you go. You wanted him. Here he is. Uh oh. A wop up a loom up a lop and boom. Okay. <laughs> Rolling of all the covers, I'm curious to see why you picked this Well, one. Rolling Stone magazine declared that this was the most inspired rock lyric ever recorded. 
In 2010, the U.S. Library of Congress National Recording Registry added the recording from which it comes to its registry, stating that Tutti Frutti, with its original a cappella introduction, heralded a new era in music. And they're correct, because that unforgettable line, a verbal description of an explosive drum lick, remains one of the great rock lyrics. What's more, it fits perfectly with Little Richard's epic vocal style. Let's hit the Wayback Machine, okay? We're going to Macon, Georgia, 1951, where we encounter a 19-year-old black musician named Richard Pennyman. He was the third of 12 children of a local pastor who was trying to break into the music business. Now, although the great Nat King Cole had broken the color barrier in pop music, the road to success was much more challenging for rhythm and blues performers, and particularly so for early rockers. Until 1949, one of their categories, Billboard, one of Billboard's categories was race records. Really? Yes. I mean, that wasn't just an expression. No, that was actually the, the chart, wow. the race records. Weird. At the time, the race records term encompassed blues, spirituals, and soul music. If you were a black artist of any genre, if was you it, charted... That, did the soul chart replace that? Uh, rhythm and blues. Okay. Yeah. Um, in 1949, they, they, they switched, they, they renamed it rhythm and blues, the R&B charts. Um, but at the time, no matter what genre you performed, if you were black, you ended up on the race records chart. Uh, at the time, the race records term en- encompassed all of that. And now, here's the thing. White people could certainly purchase race records. And as time went by, they, they started buying them in increasing numbers. But the segregation of records into race-specific genres greatly limited the distribution and sales for that type of music. And if producers and music biz types were willing to pigeonhole rhythm and blues icons like Ray Charles, how would they deal with a flamboyantly bisexual black man who wore heavy makeup, sported capes, and cavorted around the stage like a drag queen on speed? That's a good description. Because Little Richard is reported many times in his career to have claimed, I am the king and queen of (laughs) rock and roll. Okay. Like his white counterpart, Jerry Lee Lewis, Little Richard was a dynamic, high-energy performer. He would lift up his leg while pounding the keyboard or jump up and play while standing atop the piano. Once his records began to click and he started to headline musical shows, Little Richard and the Upsetters, that was his background band, could work crowds into a fever pitch. Now, this caused problems, particularly in the South, where audiences at the time were strictly segregated by race, with whites on the main floor and blacks confined to the balcony. However, at his performances, members of the audience frequently jumped into the aisles to dance. And local white supremacist groups could see the writing on the wall. The, the North Alabama White Citizens Council warned that rock and roll had the potential to bring the races together. Yes, the White Citizens Council realized that if you start youth dancing, who knows where that could lead, right? In September 1955, Little Richard began a recording session with Bumps Blackwell as producer and using Fats Domino's backing band. The session was not going well as they were unable to duplicate Richard, uh, Little Richard's high energy live performances on tape. However, while Little Richard and his band were on break, Blackwell heard them singing Tutti Frutti. The song would have to be cleaned up <laughs> for a record because here are the original lyrics. Um, Tutti Frutti, good booty. If it don't fit, don't force it. You can grease it, make it easy. That was the original lyrics to Tutti Frutti. So Blackwell, <laughs> he brought in songwriter Dorothy Labostri to clean up the song yeah. for the pop market. And <laughs> she came up with the lyrics on the record. Now, that song was quickly recorded and it was released in fall 1955, whereupon it immediately shot up the Billboard charts, reaching number two on the Rhythm and Blues chart and number 17 
on the Billboard pop chart. Enter Pat Boone. <laughs> okay. Boone rose to fame and fortune in the 1950s by singing covers of black American songs in a way that was accessible to white parents. He did this in three ways. Number one, by being white. Number two, by being terminally square and safe with no sex appeal whatsoever. And number three, by watering down the overt sexuality of rock and roll music because this was the age of Perry Como before the rise of oh, Elvis. Oh, so wait a minute. Talk before to... the rise of Elvis Presley. I guess I wrongly assumed, because you remember in the 80s you did that metal album. Pat Boone did a metal album. Oh, yeah, yeah. I assumed this was a later cover. This is, this is back... This is 1955. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Wow. Yeah, he basically, if there was a black artist on the charts, Pat Boone covered the song. Uh, Everybody. Um, before, pre, before Elvis. Before Elvis. Elvis was about a year and a half away oh boy. from this. Yeah. Um, yeah, basically, once Tutti Frutti hit the record charts, the song was quickly picked up by the young Nashville artist, Pat Boone. Her name's Sue. She knows just what to do. I got a gal, her name's Sue, she knows just what to do. I've been to the east, I've been to the west, she's the gal that I love best. To the fruity, oh fruity, to the fruity, oh fruity, woo, to the fruity, oh fruity, to the fruity, oh fruity, to the fruity, oh fruity. Now, if you were a teenager in the 50s, your parents might well prohibit you from buying records produced by gender-bending, dangerously sexual black artists such as Little Richard. <laughs> Although you probably bought Little Richard's record in secret, hiding it in a closet and playing it when no adult was listening. Okay. However, surely your folks would not object to Pat Boone. Here was a throwback to your parents' generation. He was a handsome, soothing, comfortable, wholesome crooner and an outspoken icon of middle-class morality, okay? Boone notably alters and softens the lyrics to Tutti Frutti, presumably to mute the rather obvious sensuality of the original. Sue, in his version, doesn't rock. And Daisy is a real-gone cookie, okay? <laughs> he, he was the ideal performer to clean up rhythm and blues, and by converting the rough and sexually charged music into a form that a white middle-class audience could accept, he made a smoothie out of Tutti Frutti. Boone enjoyed great commercial success in the late 50s uh, through cultural appropriation, largely. In addition to covers of several Little Richard songs, Boone covered songs by Fats Domino, Ivory Joe Hunter, um, Clyde McFadder, um, The Flamingos. I mean, the list goes on and on. He was a fixture on the Billboard pop charts beginning in the mid-50s. Like so many other artists of his day, Boone's pop music career did not survive the British invasion at which time he turned to gospel and country music. Uh, he also hosted the highly successful TV show, The Pat Boone Chevy Showroom, and appeared in a number of movies. In fact, Pat Boone took seriously his image as a righteous dude, okay? Uh, perhaps prude would be more appropriate. He made headlines by refusing to kiss his co-star Shirley Jones in an early film called April Love. In recent years, he has stated that liberalism reminds him of cancer with its filthy black cells, he has also assumed the mantle of strident anti-gay advocate that was previously identified with Anita Bryant. Uh, from his Wikipedia bio, on December 6, 2008, Boone wrote an article for World Net Daily 
wherein he drew analogies between recent gay rights protests and recent terrorist attacks in Mumbai, India. Hmm. In it, he asserted that marriage is a biblically ordained institution, which the government has no part in defining. He concluded by warning that unless they're checked, the, quote, hedonistic, irresponsible, blindly selfish goals and tactics of homegrown sexual jihadists will escalate into acts vile, violent, and destructive. Speaking about the LGBTQ community. Wow. A good example of Boone's uptight morality is his 1958 book of advice for teens, and particularly young women, oh, titled, I hear this. titled Twixt 12 and 20. Oh, boy. Now, let's get one thing straight right away. Any book with twixt in the title (laughs) is bound to suck, and this book does not disappoint. Boone establishes his folksy cred by liberally sprinkling the book with phrases like chillin' and taint true. You dig it? Yeah. The the book is in large part uh, just... it, It chronicles, according to Boone, the terrible dangers of premarital sex. He provides teen readers with homilies such as kissing for fun is like playing with a beautiful candle in a room full of dynamite. And, and Boone should have seriously considered suing his ghostwriter. <laughs> but, but he was more likely laughing all the way to the bank as Twixt 12 and 20 was one of the best-selling nonfiction books of 1958. Now, a few early black rockers, they actually took a tolerant view of being covered by white artists. They, they often said that the covers reached a larger audience than their records could. But did they get paid for them? And thus, more people enjoyed the music they created. Okay. Um, no, they no, didn't get paid. Of course they, not. They, they, well, they received like a pittance, basically. Right. Um, but it did. Here's the thing. Like, Chuck Berry always credited Elvis because he said that, you know, basically, Elvis opened the door for black artists because people heard him and that encouraged them to buy the original. Gotcha. And without Elvis, it's arguable, you know, sure. that eventually it would have happened. I mean, you know, the, the civil rights movement was it, was, it was coming of, you know, it was right there at the door. But uh, people, I don't think, give rock and roll music enough credit. I mean, we talk about Brown versus Board of Education. We talk about the Montgomery bus boycott. We talk about uh, the Freedom Riders. We talk about all of these key moments in the civil rights movement. But rock and roll music. Oh, 100%. That was, I mean, I think that was probably the biggest catalyst because it was what engendered the, it was what opened the minds of, of young Anytime teenagers. you see social change, it's usually pop culture mm-hmm. that has nudged that along. Absolutely. Think about LGBT. Will and Grace. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It was like Watershed. Ellen. These, these different artists in the 90s or shows in the 90s. Um, artists, musical artists that came out like Elton John. Um, George Michael. I think really, yeah. Music, movies, TV is what moves us and progresses us along to a more tolerant society. It does. Because among other things, it's, it's, a lot of it is, you know, it's, it's comedy. You know, if you can laugh at, you know, the absurdity. All in the family. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. Right. Um, absolutely. Yeah, if you can laugh at the absurdity of the issues that the media and that, you know, older America, speaking of the 50s, you know, had basically you know, tried to stifle it, and there was such a push to keep things as they were. Um, and nothing changes because we're going through that right now. We again. are, yeah, all over again, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's here's the thing. Like, like I said, a lot of black rockers took a tolerant view of the white covers. Others were infuriated that their artistic product was being ripped off, and in some 
ways, especially through Pat Boone, just completely, it was, it was soulless. I mean, it, it's, if you play Little Richard and Pat Boone back to back, it is so pain. I mean, Little Richard makes you want to get up and dance. Pat Boone makes me want to vomit. I mean, it literally, it, it is such a a buzzkill, you know? And and this was particularly irritating as the cover was often decidedly inferior, you know? That's what it comes down to. The cover version was simply a note-for-note copy of the original. And to compound the insult, it was not unusual for race records publishers to sell the rights to the songs for pennies on the dollar. And... Here's the thing. Little Richard, he was definitely in the pissed off category on the issue. Uh, He felt that he invented rock and roll. He always claimed he was the king, um, the rightful king. And it's hard to argue with a guy who gave lessons in showmanship to both the Beatles and the Rolling Stones when they opened for his British tours, you know. Um, It was also irritating to Little Richard that Pat Boone covered so many of his songs in addition to Tutti Frutti, Pat covered Long Tall Sally, Good Golly Miss Molly, Rip It Up, Jenny Jenny. I mean... If, the Beatles did some of those too. They did, yeah. Um, but they did it in reverence. Right, right. Yeah, right, right, there's, right. A, there's a difference. Sure. I mean, here's the thing. Like, Elvis, the, the, you know, the claim that he, that he culturally appropriated, he, of course he did. He did. But he did it in reverence. He grew up listening to the mm-hmm. music. He sure. was a blues fan. And really, he sang what he loved. You know, it's no different than us choosing what song to put into the, right. you know, back in the you know, the good old days, choosing which, which album to play. I mean, these were the songs he loved. They were the songs he sang. Um, Pat Boone did not have that yeah, no. connection. Pat Boone was literally, you know, marketed as a safe alternative to the horrible, you know, influence of rock and roll music. Um, and what, what really was particularly galling is that Pat Boone's covers always outsold the of originals course, yeah. and charted higher. Hmm. Little Richard's Tutti Frutti peaked at number 17. Pat Boone's peaked at number 12. And that was something that happened again and again. Pat Boone hit number one with Good Golly, Miss Molly, and Long Tall Sally. Okay. Now, the, the proud Richard Pennyman, uh, in an interview with Washington Post writer Richard Harrington, once stated, they didn't want me to be in the white guy's way. I felt I was uh, pushed into a rhythm and blues corner to keep out of rocker's way because that's where the money is. When Tutti Frutti came out, he said they needed a rock star to block me out of white homes because I was a hero to white kids. The white kids would have Pat Boone upon the dresser and have me in the drawer because they liked my version better, but the families didn't want me because of the image I was projecting. And that happens over and over again. I, I, I just read somewhere that boys to men were really big in the late 80s. Oh, yeah. And um, Motown, Motown Philly. Yeah. A, a lot of young white Teenagers were putting their posters up in their bedrooms. And a lot of parents didn't like that. Hmm. And so the industry looked for new kids on the block as a way to yeah. produce the same. New Edition was another. New Edition, um, uh, Boys to Men. New Kids on the Block came out as a white, safer alternative for young teenagers to put up on their wall. So nothing's changed. Yeah. Um, yeah, well... I'm, I remember there was an uproar over I'll Make Love to You by yeah. Boys to Men. Yeah. I mean, I remember parents were, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, if only, here's the, here's the fun part. Like when I watch, you know, some of these artists now twerking half naked on stage <laughs> and I compare it with Elvis Presley swiveling his hips, I'm thinking I would love a time machine, you know, just 
take the artist well, you take the artist today back to that era they would have been hanged for their sure. for their you know discretion uh, but or lack of indiscretion um, yeah. indiscretion yeah it's just I don't know here I'm this um, Pat Boone's version of Tutti Frutti is genuinely terrible it deserves to be on a worst songs list um, and I could have picked any song I really could have I picked Tutti Frutti because so many people considered that acapella beginning right rock, so many people consider that to be the the lyric that introduced rock and roll. Um, whether or not you agree, I, it doesn't matter, but it's it's just, I, I went with Tutti Frutti and, and you know, for, for whatever reason, but I also felt, you know, it, it's it's never too late to, to explain where we came from and, you know, the dangers of, you know, just now I'm wondering racial now racial segregation so. I'm wondering now about that, that that album in the 80s I think it was the 80s or early 90s when he came out with that where he covered all those metal songs and he I think it was the Grammy showed up and he was wearing like leather and I know it was kind of a joke because Pat Boone you know right I, I saw it as a novelty thing and, I, and it still probably was A a novelty thing B he probably needed money <laughs> Yeah, but now I'm starting to wonder maybe was he did he think he was actually sanitizing metal music for his audience I got to think he knew it was a joke. He wasn't on the tour. Well, you know, it makes me want to hear his covers. I mean, it, it depends on who he, who did yeah. he cover? I, I have to look I mean, are we up, talking but... like PMRC? He went after like, you know, Iron Maiden and he went after, you know, I'm, I'm, I'd be really curious to know what songs he, when was this? Was this the 90s? I want to say it was late 80s. Late um, 80s, okay. It was so, it was called In a Metal Mood, No More Mr. Nice Guy. Okay, so he's desecrating a Cooper. Okay. Right, and it came out, let's see here. It came out 19, oh, gosh, it's later than I thought. It came out in 1997. Oh, wow. 97, and it included, okay, so he's got uh, Smoke on the Water. 90s, the guy would have been 80 years old. Panama, uh, No More Nice Guy, Love Hurts, Enter Sandman, Paradise City, Crazy Train, and Stairway to Heaven. Okay. Here is the cover of the record. <laughs> <laughs> Good God. Well, here's the thing. None of those songs that you named, though, are particularly overtly sexual or violent. Right, 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 right. So, because I was hoping he would cover, like, I don't know, something, like, really, you know, just to see how did, did he clean it up, you know? It says I, here, it says here, he succeeded in propelling Metal Mood onto the Billboard uh, record charts, making it Boone's first album to hit since 36 years. Um, it did not please some of his older longtime fans who considered the heavy metal genre in bad taste or worse. The album has since become somewhat of popular as a joke gift to metal fans, uh, as often indicated in reviews given to it, although some serious sites have given it good reviews on its own merits. Yeah, the album featured guest appearances from Ronnie James Dio and Richie Blackmore. Really? Yeah, I had to listen to this now. Yeah, I'm, I'm, seriously. Yeah, I'm surprised anybody would want to be a part of that. It just sounds... Oh, now I'm curious. Yeah. 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 Um, so apparently at some point in his career, he did a 180 and started to enjoy rock and roll. So here it is. On the American Music Awards, he wore a dog collar and leather to promote the record. I do remember that very clearly. I do too. Yeah, now that you say now that. Now it says, Pat Boone covers hard rock and heavy metal songs in a jazz big band style. Now I really have to listen to this. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm okay. gonna, I've learned more about Pat Boone in the last 10 minutes yeah, than I've recorded tonight. I, later tonight, I, I have an appointment with a, <laughs> with a new new recording. We'll have to throw um, one on the mention song for <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Your turn. All right. Well, what's the question everybody was asking in 2000? Uh, I wasn't, but a lot of people were asking, <laughs> who let the dogs out? Uh, from uh, the Baja men. Who let the dogs out? was nice, the party was bumping. Hey, yeah. And everybody having a ball. Hey, hey. Until the fellas start the name calling. Hey, and the girls respond to the call. Hey, I have hey, a pull hey, one shot hey. Who let the dogs out? 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 If you are alive, at the turn of the century, um, you heard the song a few dozen times a day. It was the one of the best-selling songs of the decade worldwide, but failed to hit the top spot on the pop charts. So not a number one, but close. Yeah. The genre, I learned something new every time we do one of these episodes. The genre is actually Junkanoo. Junkanoo. Junkanoo? Yeah, which derived from chattel slavery in the Caribbean and remains very, very popular in, the Jamaica, in Jamaica and the Bahamas. Hmm. So it, it, it's African in origin and kind of became, you know, I'd say Americanized in terms of... Um, How have I never heard this term? I, I, yeah, I, I didn't either. Wow. Um, so I guess similar to, to reggae, kind of something like that. You know, it's a unique right. um, art form um, from, from that region, but, but comes from, from African tradition. Um, the song became a huge part of uh, Bahamian pop culture and its success led to a number of lawsuits disputing its intellectual property apparently it was one of those i didn't get into it on my notes but like 80 people claimed to have started and written it and at some part had something to contribute to it until it finally landed uh, with the bahamut hmm. uh, in fact in 2019 there was a documentary about the creation of the song that was a hit at the south by southwest film festival in austin so i gotta check that out too i gotta i gotta watch this documentary yeah. Oh, yeah. The song found itself on a number of worst song lists and came in at number three on a Rolling Stone poll of the most annoying songs of all time. Guess what was number one? Because I knew you were going to ask. Um, what year was the poll? Um, I don't have that listed, but I'll just tell you, you already talked about the song last week. Last week. Um it could be any of them. Lumps and humps. <laughs> oh, my humps. Yes, yeah. that was okay. the number one. I'm surprised it, that doesn't top every list. Really. <laughs> I, I, I am. It didn't take long for the song to pop up at sporting events, college football, Major League Baseball, world football matches. Perhaps um, that's why this song still hangs around the edges of my brain. Um, and, and it's not forgotten by so many other flash-in-the-pan hits of yesteryear. Um, yeah, you know, whatever. It, it, I toyed not putting this song or putting it on. It's annoying. It's repetitive. It's basic. But it brought people joy, so who am I to say? Right. I, it, it is a terrible, categorically, <laughs> I mean, there's... A, well, the barking maybe is what's yeah, over the top. Undeniably, me. you cannot... And the video, where the dogs are chasing them around, right. remember that? Yeah, you can't deny that it's a horrible song, but I, um, I don't know, it's, it should be there. It should definitely <laughs> be on our, on our mix. It's just, uh, I don't know, it, we're, I'm getting to the point now with our list that I'm like, every song is so much 
worse than the last. It's, it's just kind of a... <laughs> We're becoming desensitized. We are, yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm about to change that, though. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, All right. You done? Yeah, yeah. That was All just right. a quickie. Well, let me just say it is an irrefutable fact that Tom Jones... <laughs> and his ode to bestiality is one of the worst songs ever created. Okay. I am talking about What's New Pussycat. It hit number three in 1965, written by Burt Bacharach for the Peter Sellers movie of the same name. The song is an embarrassment. It muddies an otherwise impressive catalog of Bacharach hits. There are three things, and I, we said this last week, really. There are three things, I think, that, that really define a bad song. There, there's the terrible melody. Yep. There's the imbecilic lyrics. Yep. And there's the poor performance. Okay. Usually, hitting one out of three will make a song unbearable. Sure. Okay. But Bacharach's composition, How David's lyrics, and Tom Jones' delivery managed to knock this one out of the park. What's new, pussycat? Whoa, whoa, whoa! What's new, pussycat? Whoa, 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 whoa! Pussycat, pussycat, I've got flowers and lots of hours to spend with you. So go and potter your cute little pussycat nose. Pussycat, pussycat, I love you. Yes, I do. You and your pussycat nose. What's new, pussycat? Whoa, whoa, whoa. What's new, pussycat? Whoa, 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 whoa. What's new, pussycat is so horrible that I'm not really angry about it. Frankly, I'm impressed, honestly, that any song can be this bad. The song begins with Jones caterwauling like a man being castrated. And every time he sings the refrain, what's new, pussycat? Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not going to sing it for you. Um, I'm fairly certain that an angel loses its wings. Okay? He's not actually talking about a cat. No, I'm getting to that. Okay, you said bestiality. So. Yeah, no, I was just I figured, playing yeah. with the, right, the title. Right, right, right. Um, I thought maybe I missed something. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> and, and when Jones isn't screaming like a banshee during the chorus, he is uttering some of the most moronic lyrics I've ever heard. He goes on and on, crooning in what I guess is his attempt at a sexy voice, um, using very unsexy words, detailing his insatiable lust for Pussycat's nose, Pussycat's eyes, and Pussycat's lips. Jeez. Now, it isn't sexy, it's creepy, okay? And the song is only about two minutes, 15 seconds. Yet Joan says the word Pussycat 26 times. Anytime you equate a woman to an animal, uh -huh. it's creepy. Yeah. Well... 26 times in 2 minutes 15 seconds means that he says the word pussycat about every, <sighs> about every 5 seconds. Okay? Now here's the thing. In 1965, one would think that the word pussycat still referred to, well, a cat. Right. But Tom Jones was no Tweety Bird. Okay? Bacharach specifically selected Tom Jones to sing this song, and Tom Jones had already developed his image as a ribald pop star. He had already begun pushing the envelope in his performances, so I question what many believe to be the innocent use of the word pussycat. In he was the, the first where women threw their underwear up yeah. on stage. Yeah, he yeah. was the first. Now, feel free to disagree, folks, but my interpretation of this song is not innocent at all. The horrific opus is most surely a thinly veiled metaphor for a woman's vagina. And again, it's creepy. Yeah. <laughs> there is no subtlety here, none. Yet somehow the song duped the censors, okay? 
And look, I'm not a prude. I own a good collection of music that would scare the hell out of Tip and Gore. Okay, there, there are warning labels on more than one third of my collection, and I, I jammed Clarence Carter every chance I get. But, <laughs> but sexual references do not need to be explicit or direct. Okay, but they should be either sexy or fun. This song is neither. Right. And when I listen to it, I feel like I need to take a shower afterward. I really do. And one more thing, when, when listening to the song to prepare for this episode, I, I basically on Spotify, I, I hit play, but it did one of those things where they had a list of Tom Jones songs. Sure. And it started playing one after the other. Well, what it was, because I had typed in What's New Pussycat, <laughs> there, were, there were seven different versions listed wow. there. And it played them one after another, after another, after another. I got through four plays of the song, not realizing it had played four times. Okay, it is so unbelievably repetitive. You mean the same song, not different cover versions? Yeah, no, same song. Jeez. It is so unbelievably repetitive that unless you are listening intently to the words, you do not realize when one play ends and the next begins. This song is just. Uh, you, uh, I, I think Austin Powers when I hear this song. Yeah, yeah. You know, some some guy in the swinging sixties, right? You know, talking, calling a, a woman a chick or a bird or a pussycat. Yeah, but I, this song is, it's so, it's so filthy, <laughs> but not in a good way, you know? It, it's just, there's, it's just, I keep saying creepy. It's not, it's not it's, a one-eyed cat peeking in a seafood store? No, no, it is not. <laughs> um, it, it is, oh man, it, it's that just. That was clever. That, that was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, this is just. That's a way to get past the sensors right there. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> Um, yeah, this isn't, you know, a speeding train going through the tunnel. This is literally... Um, <laughs> the airplane. Good. I, it's just... This one does not desensitize me. This one, every listen, I get more grossed out by the song. It's just... And I'm not... I, Tom Jones. I mean, it got to the point as I'm writing it's not about, unusual. Yeah. Sorry. Well, <laughs> sorry. I was just about to name the song, too. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I don't like anything by the guy, but as I'm writing about... What's new, Pussycat? I started wanting to hear it's so unusual just to get. What about know, his his cover of Prince's Kiss? Oh, that is so terrible. <laughs> I mean, really, we could make an entire list of Tom Jones for the worst world's worst songs. It's just, whew. I made a joke once about the proper disposal of Tom Jones records, and it got a good laugh. <laughs> I, forgot, I think I was at lunch sometime, and so there's a procedure for those disposal. You have to be careful with a hazmat suit and, uh, you know, agreed concrete. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> that it? That's it for Mr. Yeah, Jones? That's it, hey, yeah. the guy had uh, women's underwear thrown at him. I mean, that's that's got to count for something. Yeah, I'm <laughs> sure. Okay. You think he kept all those? Or? Probably. Ooh. Probably. That, that's, a, that's a rock hall exhibit I don't want to see. I, no. I, <laughs> I just... The man, I just I find the man disgusting. <laughs> I can't help it. I mean, I don't know. Maybe he's a really nice guy. He might but, be. But his songs. Uh, he's definitely one, swinging. Yeah, this song is just. It's so over the top. It's just. <laughs> oh, it's disgusting. So, this is this is the the male equivalent of my humps. Is what yeah, this I is. Gotcha. Yeah, it's yeah. very close. Except both are objectifying women. I mean, Tom Jones isn't singing about himself. There's a lot of objectifying women on there this. There is, yes. Whole lot. Thank you, Paul Inca. All right, your turn. Well, my next one, this is one that you specifically questioned. I don't blame you. Um, I, and this is, yeah, I'm just going it, to, it's, it's a personal, <laughs> very personal one for me here. 
Um, and it's tough because I mentioned last week that I would talk about a song that I, I really like the, the, the intro and I really like the verse, but man, the chorus just kills the entire song. It's one that pops up all the time on Yacht Rock Radio. I'm talking about Georgie Porgy mm-hmm. by Toto from their debut album in 1978, Toto. question you on this one i i don't i don't love the song but to me this is there it, it doesn't make it on a on a worse songs list i was surprised by that's it. why it's so personal so <clears throat> you know i'm a big fan of of yacht rock as i've mentioned and and toto is one of the yacht rock giants not not quite there with the patron saint of yacht rock michael mcdonald which by the way i did check we could do a podcast with 24 different selections of michael mcdonald uh, in a, either in a duet situation or with another band or with solo, like he's that involved. You oh know, yeah, back up with oh, Kenny Loggins that. and Christopher Cross and Steely Dan. But anyway, um, I dig Toto. I really do. I, I, I think just about everything they recorded was great, except for <clears throat> Georgie Porgy. The song was not a big hit, although it got close to the top forty. Well, it it actually. I think it's close. It didn't. I think it's top the, forty. Oh, you sure about that? I'm sure about that. Didn't okay, break keep, the top. Got close. Well, Fifty okay. something. But the inclusion of the song under the greatest hits compilation, along with the overexposure on Not Rock Radio, qualifies this track for me as one of the worst of all time. Um, I remember buying Toto's greatest hits compilation in high school. I loved Rosanna and Africa and Toe the Line and Pamela and I'll Be Over You and I Won't Hold Back. And then Georgie Porgy came up. And I couldn't understand why this band would even record such a stupid song, much less include it on their Greatest Hits compilation. Did you find the chart position? Uh, yeah, it, it actually hit 48. There you go. So, But I do believe... Oh, keep going. I'm, I'm trying to remember. Now, the, like I said, the verses aren't horrible. I actually love the bass part. It's one of my favorite bass parts of any Toto songs. Really interesting. 
But the, and there's a whole groove. I mean, it's leading you to thinking this is going to be a great song. You're all geared up. It's like, yeah, it's what a good verse does. A good intro and verse prepares you for the payoff on the chorus. And yet, what are we left with? Oh, Georgie Porgie, Pudding Pie, Kissed the Girls and Made Them Cry. That's it. Over and over and over again, sung to a melody, which is very boring. It's not clever. It's not a hook. And it just goes on and on. Then you go back to the verse again. You're like, oh, that's the song I was enjoying. And then it goes back to the chorus again. And it's just such a strange dichotomy of, of, of really good and just plain awful. It's almost like they got to the chorus and they said, ah, yeah, this is good enough. We'll just phone this part in. I just don't get it. I don't get it. Maybe somebody can write it and tell me why I'm wrong. Yes. Well, I was, just gonna, well, I was looking. At yeah. it, it actually it charted highest on the R&B charts. Okay. Hit number eight. I was talking... Yeah, no, no, I know. Yeah, it was number 48 on the Hot 100. Yeah. It was number 18 on the R&B chart, and it yeah, was... Yeah, it's got a groove. It, it was... It hit... It also charted on the dance chart. I'm not sure how. It's not really a dance number, but... No. Um, well, I was going to say, to me, I always found the, the vocals really kind of punchy, and I, I think the slide guitar work... That's fine. Oh, is, that's fine. Yeah, I, I just... I don't know. I was, I, I was it's just, just a good example how you can ruin a good song with a bad chorus, yeah. and bad lyrics, and, and no melody. Yeah, just not a fan of the nursery rhyme, huh? It has nothing to do with the nursery rhyme. It just doesn't fit. <laughs> All right, like so, they're in the process of writing. I'm trying to imagine this, right? They have this funky little song about unrequited love. Great. Okay. Then they get to the chorus and they just blank. They're like, "Well, I don't know. Let's just." On a nursery, I, it just doesn't make any sense at all. It's not clever. It's it's just I don't get it. And and a few fans online have suggested, they've suggested that the track is actually the result of a psychedelic trip. Hmm. Which okay, that might explain it, I guess. But once you got off safely on the other side, why didn't you change it? <laughs> why did you get there? I'm like, wow, that was weird. Okay. Uh, anyway, despite all of this, um, the song is not universally hated like I'd expect. I looked online. There are some people that agree with me. There are some people that are saying the exact same thing that I'm saying. But apparently we are in the minority, and I just don't get it, and I doubt I ever will. And it's it's kind of an inside joke with my, my wife and I because she hates it with as much fervor as I do. And when we're listening to Yacht Rock, um, or maybe even The Bridge once in a while, and this song comes on, and it's just like, oh my gosh, Why? Why? I don't get it. Yeah. That's what's so frustrating, right? It's one thing to disagree with somebody and you realize, oh, no, it's good. It's just not my thing. Or that, we just have different tastes. Or I can respect the brilliance of that. It's just not for me. But, what, but when the rest of the world likes something and you just don't see it, you feel really isolated. Like, what am I missing? Yeah. Because I just think it's bad. No. I, yeah. No. I, I get it. Um, yeah. No, I, I, I'm not defending the song. I mean, I've never. You're welcome. I, to I don't. Well, no, I I don't love the song. <laughs> it's, I I I respect Toto. I loved their output. Um, you know, here and it, to me, Toto's kind of been hit or miss. I only know the the singles. I don't know their well, yeah, their deep cuts. I don't know. Um, that, but hold the line, Africa, Rosanna, yeah, you know. Um, they're just a great. They're all studio musicians. They they're are just such yeah. great musicians. That, that's exactly what. Yeah, it's polished, but that's Lock Rock. Yeah, yeah, right. But I I don't. Yeah, I just. I mean, this one. John just, Smart, right? yeah. just, that's that's a melody. Na 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 na. And it's fine if if it was the whole nursery rhyme or if it went in a different direction. But no, it's just the exact same phrase with the exact same awful melody. 
I'm sorry. All right. Fair enough. Cheers, man. No, hey, I I get it. You've 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 told me for several of mine that you you know you don't hate the song. I this one's just I don't. Mm -hmm. I guess I can't just I just can't see why you loathe it quite so. Even the performance of the singer. I don't know the name of the singer that 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 sings as a female vocalist that sings that part. Yeah, I don't know. And she's fine. Her voice is fine. She sings it with 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 passion. But it's just. It, she wasn't given anything decent to work with. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, uh, my next one, hit number one. This is the sixth song that I've given you now that hit number one over the past two episodes. Um, if asked to name the worst song of the 90s, okay, it is a good bet that many, not all, but many listeners would immediately answer the Macarena. everywhere you couldn't escape its clutches and and many have been haunted by the macarena for the better part of two decades the first few rotations of the highly repetitive dance staple were amusing enough but after maybe two of the song's four minutes turning in a circle while flapping your arms was kind of torturous really what once was a middle school dance staple was always a head-splitting irritant but today it kind of fuels my nightmares but damn it if the song doesn't have a legacy. It spent 14 weeks at number one on the Hot 100. It would not be until Adele's Rolling in the Deep 15 years later that a number one single would chart for so long. In terms of numbers, that means there was not a more popular song between 1995 and 2010 than Macarena. Which goes to prove that artistic merit and chart position do not align. Yeah, well, and, and frankly, that's just terrifying. <laughs> you know, some songs die quickly and others never go away. This is one of them. As a wedding DJ, I continue to get requests for this damn song almost every Saturday night during wedding season. And it still fills the dance floor. But what's interesting, here's, here's what just cracks me up, okay? Is that the people dancing to the Macarena never look happy. <laughs> they don't. They aren't smiling as they do it. Now, we've already established your hatred for line dances. We get it. Um, and I'm not a fan myself. But when wedding guests cha-cha slide or Cupid shuffle, they smile, they laugh. They're seemingly having a good time. 
I don't see any of that on the faces of those who do the Macarena, which begs the question, why the hell are you making me play it, okay? They always look so stern and so angry doing it. Trying to doing like, remember it. all the different uh, moves they have to make. Oh, it's, it's just, it's, it's like the hand jive for someone who, who doesn't know where the hands end and the arms begin, and you touch your head and you touch your waist, and it's, blah. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> the American label BMG, okay, they bought the Spanish label that originally released Macarena in 1993, the song did fairly well in its native Spain, and BMG set out to make Macarena a hit in America. They marketed an English-language version to dance clubs and cruise ships, then released it as a single in 1995. It was a minor hit until the summer of 96, when the Macarena dance craze hit America. Now, that, that single, it was actually by, uh, it was a remix by the Bayside Boys, and it had a female singer basically telling the narrative in English in first person. But the original version, Los Del Rio, in 96, their original was re-released, and that's the one that today most people remember. Um, Los Del Rio, also known as the Del Rios, they're a Spanish flamenco pop duo, which was formed in 1962 by Antonio Romeo Monge and Rafael Ruiz Perigones. Uh, they were inspired to, to record this on a trip to Venezuela, when they spotted a beautiful flamenco dancer named Diana Patricia. And when the song became a hit, she became known in Venezuela as Macarena. This was the first hit for Los Del Rio since 1962, hmm. and their only hit in the U.S. Few people know the words in Spanish, and many do not know how they translate in English. Macarena, as it turns out, is a promiscuous woman whose boyfriend joins the army, and when he does, she begins sleeping with other men, including her boyfriend's two best friends. Well, that's fun. Yeah. Pretty questionable subject matter for a song that played at every elementary school dance <laughs> in 1996. Here's, here's my problem with Macarena, okay? I told you, line dances are, are DJ's best friend at, at a wedding reception. I despise this song. Any line dance that can be done seated should never have it just it, the whole thing just infuriates me I hate this song it really do so, because you gotta jump to the next side well you you spin but yeah. you know if you're in an office chair I suppose you could easily do it yeah you know, I um, um or or better yet you know you could have someone you know who can't stand you know in their rascal scooter you could do the entirety of the yeah. dance yeah. I, I just really I, I don't know I this one just grates on my nerves and I if I never hear it again, I will. It'll be too soon. But I'm sure I, I DJ on Saturday night, and I have no doubt somebody is going to request it, and it's going to drive me mad as it always does. You ready so. for this? I don't hate the song. <laughs> you are killing me here. I have a CD over over there. It's an extended uh, single of like five different remixes of Macarena. Do you have the Christmas version? No. Oh, there was a Christmas <clears throat> version. It's called Christmas Macarena. I, and, I'll, and I'll tell you why I don't hate it. I don't. I'm not saying I like it. Okay. But, it, but but there's a story. So my wife and I got married in 1996. Okay. okay? We left um, for, we got in May of 96. And so we left for our honeymoon and we went to the Caribbean, Western Caribbean tour. And we were on the cruise ship. They played this song, which was, you know, when you're on a cruise, you, you pretend like, hey, this is, this is exotic. This is foreign, right? <laughs> so here's this exotic song that everyone has this dance to. 
of course, I'm sure we had plenty of adult beverages for the, throughout the week. And man, we had just had so much fun with this Macarena thing to the point where we wanted to come home and like, hey, we cool, we heard this like international song. It's, it's just kind of fun. We get back to the States and all of a sudden it, it, it hit while we were gone and everyone's doing the Macarena and it was just out there. But I have fond memories of my honeymoon and because that was such a fun little inside thing, it will always remain special to me for that. So I'm not looking at it objectively. Yeah. I'm sure if I would look at it objectively, I would be in your corner 100%. But, you know, it was we had fun on our honeymoon. You know, it's no different than like uh, Hot 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 was the other one. It was between Hot Hot Hot. I remember that, yeah. And you and the train thing, Hot you, Hot Hot. You talked about that, yeah. And, and then, and, and Macarena. Those were the two most played songs and we were just having fun in the crowd. I, lo- I love Hot Hot Hot. And I don't get to play that very often. But I'm not saying it's a good song. I'm just saying, again, there's so much of it's personal taste well, and nostalgia and, and that. Yeah. Well, no. And that's why I don't if, if you associate it with your honeymoon, I would hope that it, <laughs> right, it, it right. does not bring, you know. Right. You know. I mean, I was so proud because I don't dance. I'm awful at dancing. Uh, I don't remember the moves and I just don't work that way. I'm not coordinated enough to even pull them off if I remember them. But that was something, like you said, line dancing thing. And I didn't, I didn't really see that as line dancing as much because you're not using your feet. You know, the boot scootin' boogie, which was popular at the time, you know, you're kicking your boots and do. This was simply like, like the YMCA. You're putting your hands in the air and your hip and whatever. I was drunk. <laughs> I was drunk with my wife. Good fun. I can respect that. I'm, okay. Once you brought up the honeymoon, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. But at first, I was really about to go off on you. That, you know, you hate Toto, but you're okay with the Macarena. Dave, I was about to, we were about to exchange blows on that. I will say, is it, and I'm not a wedding DJ like you are, but, um, but uh, every year we take the sixth graders down to outdoor education camp. And we do a little dance for them in the evening. And, uh, and I've been selected to DJ that simply because I know a little bit about music. And, um, of course, I have to put together stuff that the kids, A, that the kids know, and that's fun for them to dance to, uh, and B, is, is appropriate. And that Venn diagram is, is pretty it's small. It's very, very narrow, yeah. What I love about this Gen Z here, or I guess we're now under Gen Alpha, um, they love the 80s. And, and they love just those fun dance songs. So my playlist is, is a lot of the songs on our list, you know, the cha-cha slide, the Macarena. I also put in Don't Stop Believing" and Living on a Prayer. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, they love Living on a know, Prayer. I, yeah. I, I was shocked. I, uh, the hand clap song from, uh, um, what's the name of the band? The, um, which one? Hand clap. Oh, Fits in the Tantrums. Fits in the Tantrums, yeah. you know. Um, there were a couple that I was even surprised. What did I play? Oh, it's tricky by Run DMC. Oh yeah, that, someone requested that. I said that's odd, and I played it, and the kids knew every single word. Oh, yeah. yeah, no, that has to be a TikTok I, or something. I, I play that every wedding. Yeah, it's um, crazy. Yeah, it's it's, it's um, like shooting fish in a barrel. They just love yeah. it. Yeah, no, the, you can get away with playing all eighties yep. to a to a middle school dance. Yeah, it, yeah. It's just, it's, in it's fact, a, I have. It's a saving grace because they like it, and and for the most part, it's appropriate. Yeah, so. and they know they know everyone. Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of. I don't know. I, I kind of take pride in the fact that the 80s are yeah. so wildly popular. Right. Because that 30-year differential, they should be on the 90s right now. Right. But they're still hooked well, on the 80s. So. And, I, and I had a reality check because uh, at school the other day, I looked at a poster for the upcoming dance, and it's the 90s dance. Mm. And I thought of, wow, if this were Back to the Future, it'd be the fish in the sea, you know, for the 50s dance. Right. And it's just so strange that here they are um, looking at the 90s like we looked at the 50s. It's weird. Yep. All right, my last one. Last one. <clears throat> Again, this this song is not a horrible song. It's really not. I guess it more represents what I hated about high school. And we were snobs in high school. And you know, we listened to mostly classic rock and and 
I listened to alternative. <clears throat> uh, what we didn't listen to at the time was were any, or I should say, most of the songs that were in the zeitgeist pre pre um, grunge, right? Which happened right. when we were in college. Yeah. And so, other than uh, "Can't Touch This," other than that song, the only other one that I can think of that was at the same or bigger was "Ice Ice Baby." Oh, yeah. By by Vanilla Ice. VIP. Let's kick it. Like a vandal, light up a stage and wax a chump like a candle. Dance, crush the speaker that booms. I'm killing your brain like a poisonous mushroom. Deadly, when I play a dope melody, anything less than the best is a felony. Love it or leave it, you better gain weight. You better hit bullseye, the kid don't play. If there was a problem, yo, I'll solve it. Check out the hook while my DJ revolves it. this consistently in high school um <laughs> remember the dance that we were hired we were hired to do was it like a homecoming kind of thing or it was when, like after no it was um basically our homecoming dances were both canceled because no one bought tickets ah it was okay. journalism it was the journalism room we decided as newspaper editors that we were going to throw a dance and we were going to actually that makes sense make it happen <laughs> but it did it did it happen did. no it did everybody bought tickets for our dance <laughs> they did didn't buy anything for homecoming but then we played all the music we like we did yeah <laughs> the i remember the teacher coming up and she's like can you play something what was it she a little said, more ethnic a little more ethnic she was a spanish teacher so well, i wasn't sure what she meant by well, that at first we thought she said <laughs> ethical and we we both looked at each other i remember this and we said what's wrong with the music we're yeah, playing because we know? weren't playing um can't touch this and we yeah. weren't playing salt and pepper and we weren't playing right. the ice um <laughs> excuse me it's funny how you mature and you realize like really the dance is for them not you <laughs> but we were just convinced it was all about us um so and, and of course the the song is is based all around the stolen riff from from John Deacon from from Queen mm-hmm. um from his his incredible riff um for Under Pressure. Now like so that, many yeah that, that was the part that always I hated most about this. Yeah yeah because yeah. when I would hear it on the radio I would think Queen and I'd turn it up and then immediately I'd turn it back down. <laughs> you but don't know? you know it's a it's a different <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> he tried to he tried to justify it by saying yeah. that the um the rhythm was different. No. I mean, I was okay with "Can't Touch This" because I, I, there's no passion in from me coming right, for right. for you know super freak. <laughs> but but yeah, oh, that always annoyed me. <laughs> so yeah, uh, like many hits we've discussed on the show in the past, uh, "Ice Ice Baby" was actually a B side for uh, Mr. V- Vanilla Robert Van Winkle's "Ice's Cover." That's his name, Robert Van Winkle. I can see why I changed it to Vanilla. Yeah, um, cover of uh, "Play That Funky Music." So that was the single, "Play Play That Funky Music," um, and and this was the B side. But there was a, a DJ named David Morales, uh, club DJ, who started playing the flip side, and it caught on. So we've heard this story a million times, right? Ice Ice Baby became the first hip hop song to hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100. It sounds to me eerily like what you were talking about with Pat Boone. Oh yeah. Now, I'm not trying to say that the Vanilla Ice doesn't have hip-hop cred. 
Now it was the Beastie Boys that no one thought had hit hip hop cred, and they did. Yeah. It did. Oh and yeah. They had the respect of Rick Rubin yeah. and Beastie and Boys, Eminem, and there right. are, there are white rappers that are very respected, but but in a sense, he was the first to kind of cross that that barrier to make hip hop mainstream, and, and after not just Vanilla Ice, but but um, but MC Hammer and some of those artists. I mean, it, it really was the kind of the commercialization of hip hop. Uh, prior to that, like, and I had I had a couple of Run DMC albums mm-hmm. i liked a lot of that that early oh, yeah. stuff yeah um but this was kind of that was it appropriation was it not you can have that discussion but uh, vanilla ice is, is is credited for expanding the hip-hop genre to a much wider and more diverse mainstream pop audience mm-hmm. um finally not not too long ago he finally has admitted to lifting the sample from queen he tried so long to say no no he came up with it and it's different and so forth he finally admitted that he was and he was forced to pay royalties to queen and david bowie of course um, and they are now both listed as um, songwriters on the track as well. But he had a um, um, a brother that, that was into rock, and he would comb through his, his, his album sometime, and that's where he heard the riff, and that's where he lifted it from. Um, I must say, though, that I respect Mr. Van Winkle with the good sense of at least recognizing that the riff was great. <laughs> I'm giving a little bit. <laughs> and then it would fit nicely under his hip-hop track um, with uh, what are some of the lyrics like... Uh, Word to your mother. <laughs> Word to your mother. Put something the DJ will revolve it. Uh, I don't know, whatever. Um, Stop, still- collaborate, and listen. Yeah, I, I just... Oh, good. This is another one that I have to play every weekend, so I, I, I could sing the entire song for you. It still obviously makes my work worst list. Um, I, I couldn't stand it in high school. Uh, I, I don't even have an ounce of guilty pleasure nostalgia for it either. No. Sorry, folks. Um, even a lot of the critics and readers' polls dig this song, but, uh, but I, just can't, I just can't do it. Well, it, it actually, I saw this on a number of worst songs lists. Yeah. I mean, it's... It's, it's, it's polarizing. Yeah, it's, it's very... Um, I yeah. had a girlfriend that liked all that stuff, I remember. Uh, the nostalgia for this song, though, it's this... Um, no one ever asked for Can't Touch This, ironically. Hmm. Um, but I get requests for this. I get requests for, for Tone, mu- Tone Loke. Tone Loke, CND Music Factory? Not really, hmm. no. Um, occasionally, I'll get... I, like, I kind of like some yeah. of stuff. Occasionally, I'll get requests for... Um, oh, I'm trying to think. Who else? Um, oh, Baby Got Back. Oh, yeah. Everybody. Okay. Okay. everybody yeah, classic, that was yeah. 92. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Sir Mix a Lot, man. That that, that song is never going to die. And I, I actually love that one. That was actually, I think, earlier, but then they re-released it in 92? I'm not sure. I just I know think it, it was late 92 anyway. is when it started. I've always loved Baby Got Bad. I just think it's a fun mm-hmm. song. But um, I like when they covered it in Shrek. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's it for me. I'm done with my picks. What's All your last right. one? My last one is the song of all 12 that I hate the most. What can I possibly say about this notorious calamity that has not already been said a hundred times? Um, nothing, but that has never stopped me. <laughs> uh, the song in question, my last number one from 1992, Achy Breaky Heart. Mm. You can tell the world Tell my fingertips 
They won't be reaching out for you no more Don't tell my heart My achy, breaking heart I just don't think you'd understand And if you tell my heart My achy, breaking heart He might blow up and kill his man This best represents the country music craze in the early 90s. As the audience for old country, artists like Willie Nelson and George Strait waned, younger listeners turned to new country, which had slick production and pop melodies. Achy Breaky Heart led the charge, crossing over to Top 40 Radio and becoming a major hit. Thanks to the song, the album Some Gave All went to number one for 17 weeks, which was a record for a debut artist. One artist that was held off the top spot by Billy Ray and his mullet was Megadeth, whose countdown to extinction had to settle for number two. Uh, the group's rather impolitic leader, Dave Mustaine, was not pleased. He griped all those fat effing housewives in the Midwest and this guy with his funny haircut in that song. It just resonated with the American people and they bought into it and there was no shaking it. His song was a novelty. I hate it. <laughs> Direct quote. <laughs> he should be happy that Megadeth was that high on the well, yeah, really? Symphony for Destruction, right? That was the big single. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I thought the same thing, frankly. Um, <laughs> but the song may have been a novelty, but it made Some Gave All the best-selling album of 1992. Okay, The song was one of the most controversial recordings in Nashville history, though. The song was immediately polarizing despite its immense chart success. Many critics derided its lyrics and structure, Country purists hated it and blamed Cyrus for desecrating the country and Western genre. And Music Row was annoyed by the song's intentional simplicity. Its unusual semi-comical lyrics and an easy but energetic hook and chord progression that made it an undeniable earworm. Regardless, the song paved the way for artists like Shania Twain and Faith Hill, who had massive pop success with their country songs. I wonder what they'd say about Old Time Road. Do you play that one? Do you get requests for all time? Uh, I, I did for a while. Yeah, Occasionally yeah. still, but not not so much. But that actually outperformed Achey Breaky oh, Heart. Oh, did it? Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's actually now Billy Ray Cyrus's best-selling song. Hmm. Um, so Joe Scaife, he, he co-produced uh, the album, Some Gave All, with Jim Cotton. He presented the cassette demo to Cyrus when he was preparing to record the bulk of the album at Nashville's Music Mill in May 91. Cyrus recalls in interviews that before they started going into rehearsal, Scaife said, hey man, I got this thing that you'll either love it or hate it. And pretty much Scaife's appraisal ended up being the story of the song. Upon its release, Aki Breaky opinions became the talk of the creative community. And when the Associated Press asked Travis Tritt, uh, who was big in the genre at the time, for his thoughts on it, he touched off a public feud with Cyrus, calling Achy Breaky Heart frivolous, saying it turned country music into an ass-wiggling contest. He is not wrong. No. <laughs> so the song also spawned the Achy Breaky, which was the most popular and prominent of the United States line dancing craze. More than the, the boot scoot and boogie? Much more. It was the most popular was line dance. Was it before dance. the boot scoot and boogie? Uh, that yeah. doesn't matter, I don't care. Uh, would have been right around the same time, I think. Don't even look it up. I don't care. Yeah, I think it's about the same time, but you're really going after um, <laughs> Brooks and Dunn on this episode. Um, but nonetheless... Not, I didn't say anything bad about Brooks. I just mentioned them I know, in, no, in, in you passing. Just, I know. You just keep bringing it up. It's well, because we're line dancing. That's oh, what I think. I, fair to, enough. To me, if, I think that is the biggest line dancing song of all time. Maybe I'm wrong on that. Oh, yeah. No, it's not. Because it was written about line dancing, right? The Boot Scoot and Boogie is a song about line yeah, dancing. it is. But it, it actually, Achy Breaky Heart was the first. Okay. In fact, Achy Breaky Heart, here, here's the thing, okay? It was not only the most popular line dance craze 
of the 90s, and it became ubiquitous in country dance bars. Before Cyrus's debut single hit big, line dancing was not associated with country music at all. Hmm, interesting. He introduced line dancing to country. Gotcha. And overnight, it seemed that every new country song had an accompanying because it was kind of an African American thing originally, I believe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it it was definitely um, cultural yeah. in that respect. What's more, the song "Achy Breaky Heart" was translated into more than one hundred languages. This was the song. Not only did it introduce country line, not not only did it introduce line dancing to country music. This was the song that is credited as introducing American line dancing to the rest of the world. I didn't know there were over hundred languages that mm-hmm. were still being spoken today. And here you, you're going after DJ Casper. <laughs> so now even Weird Al had something to say. He parodied the track with Achy Breaky Song in which he begs the DJ not to play that Achy Breaky Song. Now Al offered several alternatives that he deemed far less offensive to the ears, including Yoko Ono, <laughs> Vanilla Ice, and Zamfair. Okay. It should be added that Yankovic donated all the profits for his spoof to the United Cerebral Palsy Association. Uh, because Yankovic felt that the song was mean-spirited, so he thought he might as well donate the money earned to a charitable cause. Or people that couldn't perform the line dancing. Yes. Now, Yankovic, though, in my mind, had every right to be (laughs) mean-spirited. Because how can you not be mean-spirited when discussing this travesty? I mean, musically, it's just two chords, the tonic and the dominant chord, okay? And it only has one phrase structure for the verse, and it's the same as the chorus. And it only has... uh, yeah, just that one. They're, they're built exactly the same. Every verse in the chorus right. it's just is the chords. same. You're right. Okay. Now, there are plenty of objectively great songs with only two or three chords, or even just one. The Bob Marley and the Wailers version of Shame and Scandal only bounces back and forth between the tonic and the dominant. Coconut by Harry Nelson, which could have <laughs> which could have made my list, uh, literally only uses one chord for its more than four-minute runtime. Okay. And then there are, the, there are the Ramones and their legions of imitators who get by just fine with three chords. That's the magic number, man. Yeah. In, in truth, country music has a long history of having just two or three chords. But Achy Breaky Heart is missing two key elements. First, every good classic country song that you can think of has a bridge or a chorus that changes chords. Sure. Every one. Achy Breaky Heart does not. Hmm. Second, every good country song that has simple instrumentation is defined by clever lyrics or really good storytelling. Right. The lyrics to Achy Breaky Heart aren't clever at all. There is no story being told, okay? At least not a good one. Achy Breaky Heart is one pickup truck verse away from being a parody <laughs> of the country music genre itself. Lyrically, the list of things his ex could tell, other than his Achy Breaky Heart, reads like a rejected Jeff Foxworthy joke. You can tell my arms to go back to the farm. You can tell my feet to hit the floor doesn't actually mean anything, for example, but because it involves a farm, it's country, Hmm. okay? Now, the real hero of the song, though, and you're not a lyrics guy, so, but the real hero of this song is the unnamed woman's brother, Cliff, who through meandering tortured wordplay, Billy Ray suggests, punched him in the face. So there is a story. Kind of, yeah. In 1992, when the song was inescapable, we all wanted to punch Billy Ray in the face. (laughs) So that was even before all those uncomfortably sexual photo shoots with his daughter, okay? Now, but what really makes me laugh is Cyrus's take on this song, okay? Concerning the song's lasting popularity, and despite the criticisms that have been aimed at it over the years, Cyrus feels that Achy Breaky Heart serves an important purpose. And what purpose is that? He has said, quote... 
When the song was released in the spring of 92, the world, believe it or not, felt much like it does right now. There were wars and rumors of wars. Famine and darkness were revealing itself much around the globe. People were divided. And politically, it felt as crazy across America as it does now. He wrote this during the Trump administration. Basically, it felt like a good time for a happy song. Something simple that everyone could sing and, yes, even dance to. Take your mind off all the heavy stuff for three minutes and 27 seconds. Unquote. If 92 was a trying time. Right. It was a yeah. cakewalk. Right. And so, I just, in my notes, I have a big, um, no. <laughs> I, mean, it's, I don't remember 92 being particularly, you know, I, families could still sit across from one another at Thanksgiving dinner without fighting. It was after the Gulf War. It was during the internet uh, bubble. Um, Bill Clinton... Was he president at this point? I believe he was. Yeah, 92. Or at least he started he, in 93. He, yeah, as a minister, yeah. Um, you know, yeah, you had pretty, for the most part, other than Yugoslavia, peace and prosperity. Yeah, I mean, it, it, we're, we're still far away from, you know, the reset, the, you know, basically the housing I mean, you had, you had George Bush falling. versus Bill Clinton, two of the most moderate, first George Bush, right? Yeah, he, Two of yeah. the most moderate politicians of their parties that ever ran against each other. Yeah. But no, according to him, 92 was every bit as trying as 2020. Oh, that's just wrong. And um, <laughs> this, the world needed his song. <laughs> well, this, uh, we didn't ask for it. <laughs> no, this, this is when you want to talk about country, when you, when you just want to talk about line dancing, this is the song that introduced it to the world. But there'd be no Hannah Montana. There wouldn't. And here's the thing. I actually... I'm starting to very much. I, I respect Miley. I oh, do. I think she's. I, I think, think she's great. Yeah, I, I have no no qualms with with Miley. At she's not all. Taylor Swift, but she's. Want, she's yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, I I play party in the USA every weekend that's too. A, oh my gosh, my kids love yeah, that every song. every weekend. Dude, I that's play a it. given. You play that, and yeah. Everyone's oh, out there always. Oh my gosh. Um, but yeah, Billy Ray. Now here's the thing. He actually made a sequel to this song. Um, I haven't heard it, but I know that he he there was a rapper. I forget who it is that he he. Uh, he recorded with, and they made a new, updated version of "Make You Break Your Heart," and the critics slammed it. I mean, suppose, from what I've I've read, because I haven't heard it, I didn't want to. I was afraid it would infect my ears. Um, but basically, it, everyone says it is so much. Fa- it's so far worse than the original, and I'm thinking, how the hell can it be worse than the? This song is just hold my beer. Oh yeah, it's this one is just. I, I might argue this is my most hated song. Really? Yeah. Achy Breaky Heart. Hmm. I don't like it. I just don't have any emotion. I wasn't a country fan, so I didn't well, hear I'm, it a lot, but it I, came I've out. I've never and... been a huge country fan either, but everything about this song is just, it's, I don't know, musically, uh, oh, I, I just can't. And fortunately, I will say this, this song has not been requested of me playing at weddings in at least nine or ten years so this one finally died is dead okay thankfully yes it is gone replaced by Old Town Road (laughs) um, actually that one doesn't get requested very often anymore it it did for a while it was every but I mean he has his own little comeback I mean but that's also Lil Nas I mean I I respect I respect Nas you know in fact I don't even mind Billy Ray on that particular song I mean whatever Billy Ray Cyrus actually has gone on if you're not a country fan and this is all you know then a lot of people, I think, mistakenly think that this ended his career. He actually has put out a string of albums. He's had numbers, a number of number one hits on the country charts. I mean, he's, but he, um, oh, 
just for the mullet alone, man. Just for the mullet alone. I just, I can't do this song. He made a lot more money than I'll ever make, though. Oh, (laughs) Not that that justifies anything. As teachers, most people do. (laughs) So I I do give him a little credit. He found something that people wanted to hear. They paid him a lot of money to hear it. You know? Yeah. Doesn't mean the song's any good. I, I guess, yeah. Well, shall we put these in order? We need to, yeah. All right. Absolutely. We'll be right back after this. And we're back, and we have established an order. I will say this. I don't think it mattered what order we put these into. <laughs> um, I mean, every song is a bad song, and I think just, you know, had we not made them flow, we, we did, but had we not made them flow, it would have only added to the charm of this particular <laughs> mixtape. Um, side A, we begin with uh, first track, we built this city yeah, by Starship. Mine got first. That is followed by Temporary Secretary by Paul McCartney. Followed by Tutti Fruity by Pat Boone. What's New Pussycat by Tom Jones. Achy Breaky Heart by Billy Ray Cyrus. MacArthur Park by Richard Harris. Loving You by Minnie Ripperton. I Just Called to Say I Love You by Stevie Wonder. Georgie Porgy by Toto. Disco Duck by Rick Dees and his cast of idiots. The Macarena by Los Del Rio, and we end side A with Who Let the Dogs Out? What, what are we doing? Do we expect people actually to listen to this playlist? <laughs> oh, I guarantee people are going to listen. Wow. They're going to listen. I guarantee it. Now, here, I, these are all guilty pleasures. No, I try, yeah, they they are. Yeah, yeah. Now, here's the thing. This is a, this is one of our uh, episodes that I'm never going to listen. You, right. I'm never going to listen to this particular uh, playlist. Um, all right, side B, we begin with Friday by Rebecca Black. That goes into Bat Dance by Prince. Followed by My Humps by Black Eyed Peas, <laughs> The Cha-Cha Slide by DJ Casper, Ice Ice Baby by Vanilla Ice, Heartbeat by Don Johnson, Seasons in the Sun by Terry Jacks, Tonight's the Night, Gonna Be Alright by Rod <laughs> no, Stewart, be all right. <laughs> You're Having My Baby by uh. Paul Anka, Don't Worry Be Happy by Bobby McFerrin, We Are the World by USA for Africa, and we end our mixtape with Lee Greenwood. Yes. God bless the USA. <laughs> oh man. Cherry on top. Uh, so I here's the thing. I really think I mean we we talk about a part 2 all the time that we never actually make. We never actually right. do a part 2, but we could do a part I, I but here's the thing. I don't know that I want to torture myself enough to do yeah, a part no, 2. Yeah, I think I think we because we've this taken was, care of it here. I mean, it was fun ranting, but it was not fun listening to them right. and and doing the research. It's just uh but I feel like we owed it to our our listeners to give them at least one worst of episode and so there's your late Halloween yeah. episode. So songs <laughs> so so bad they're they're, they're scary. scary. Yeah. Um but when we come back next time, it will the be holidays. the holiday mixtape. Um, so it's um, we we have in the past tried to to let that be released like this is our fourth mid November, right? Yeah, wow. yeah, it will be. Um, it's actually going to be released right at the start of December, first first Tuesday. So I hope that our listeners aren't tired of Christmas music at that point and give us a listen. But well, considering they start playing Christmas music on commercials right after Halloween. They do, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I was, uh, earlier today I was at Walgreens and already they had aisles of Christmas candy and ornaments and I'm just, it's not even, I mean, literally today is Halloween, you know, we, yeah. we record early. Right. So it's, yeah, on Halloween day you could have 
but you know you could have trimmed your tree it's just kind of disturbing to me <laughs> um <laughs> i heard a marshmallow world already in a, in a walmart commercial i don't mind marshmallow world though <laughs> you know what's weird sometimes you hate a song so much and then you come back to like it again yeah i didn't hate it as much this time i am um, no i i the versions Even I the like, though, is probably yeah. Kicking the in. versions I like, I, I love. You know, Phil Spector's That's version. That's one I played. Yeah. Um, but I also have found a, a new one, Nikki Anofsky, who's one of the jazz artists that I yeah, featured yeah. Uh, a while back. Mm-hmm. She she actually just released um, a, a brand new album of of. Uh, big band classics and um but she has a christmas album as well that's all you know basically a rat pack now in um, the past have we have we repeated songs with different artists or have we stayed clear of repeating even we've repeated songs, songs. by different artists okay so we're good yeah yeah right. um but uh yeah so i've yet to make my list yeah in fact i'm there's one i'm so excited about i've wanted to include it the past three years and spotify did not have the the licensing rights i guess yeah. now it's there so they didn't have that but they have my humps they did have my lumps. <laughs> they did. Um, Her lovely lady, lady lumps. lumps. Tell me how that is even remotely sexy. That I think lady, lovely lady lumps. <laughs> it makes me want to. I, mean, I, I want to hurl. It's just. It's so uh, peak Ferky. I'm telling you. <laughs> so, uh, but, oh. but here's the thing. I think of all the songs that we could have included. Yes. yes. And it's just, yeah, folks. You're you're very welcome that we do not do a <laughs> uh, you know a. A, a longer mix. They did yes. make, you know, they made 120 minute uh, mixtapes. We probably could justify adding two more songs to each side, but I think we're good. Yeah, I think we're very good. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, worst songs are done, and it'll be holiday spirit next time we're we're here. So, all right, all right. Uh, anything? To, I don't have anything. No, I got nothing. That's all for this time. Hot funk, cool punk, even if it's old junk. Another mix of memories awaits in two weeks. But for now, press pause, lift the needle, and hit eject. And we will see you on the flip side. Sitting in a box undigified Gonna rewind and give them one more try Think about the days of lo-fi Mixtape Memorex and TDK Getting music out there the old-fashioned way Making the greatest hits of one day Mixtape Phonograph and dual cassette before you could get everything on the internet But some things ain't made it there yet Mixtape Line in, line out if you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker, turn the volume to nine Here's an accidental slice of time
like the mixtape They're musty and dusty And sometimes when you wanna start Everything just falls apart Driving real late, Delta 88 45 on a side, then I'm through the state No iPod shuffle, you know your fate Mixtape Compiled by a friend, amateur DJing With no concern for what format's playing It was more about what the songs were saying Mixtape Got some Merle Haggard an old George Jones, someone yelling in the background. I thought I heard a phone, but it's nice when you're all alone to have a mixtape. Line in, line out, if you don't have a line. Hold the recorder to the speaker, turn the volume to nine. There's an accidental slice of time. 